Father, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Lord, that, uh, that the reason we gather is not out of tradition. It's not out of, uh, uh, Lord, not of a, out of any reason except you loved us so much. You saved us. You brought us into a new family. And we celebrate together as a church family what you did for us. And we read your word and we expect it to change our lives and read us. In your name we pray. Amen. How many of you have social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok for Gen Z? Oh, we hear some booze in the room. None of that. Come on. No judgment. Let's go. Uh, I, I, I got rid of my social media uh, a couple of years ago. I don't have any social media right now. And I feel free. I feel alive. No, it's great. It's been great. But I remember, you know, when I was on social media, you know, you, everybody has, has uh, many, many followers. Some of you have hundreds of followers. Some of you have thousands of followers on social media. And I remember when I would be on social media, I'd be scrolling through my friends' posts. And every once in a while, I'd stop and I'd like it or I'd comment it. And nobody in the room has more followers than Jesus, okay? Jesus has more followers than all of us combined. And sometimes I think we, we, we see God or Jesus in heaven just scrolling past our unimportant lives. And he stops to interact with the really special, spectacular lives. But for most of us, he's just scrolling on by. But the reality is, is we do not serve a God who scrolls by our life, who bypasses us, who doesn't see what's going on. We serve a God who interacts with us, and he sees us. Sometimes I forget how personal God is. I think out of all the places and all the situations happening around the world, God has got to have something better to do, right, than to turn his face towards me. But we need to remember this morning how incredibly we are, how incredibly loved we are by God. He loves us. He is our heavenly Father. The Bible says that God made both man and women in His image, meaning that God sometimes comes to us with both masculine and feminine qualities. And the difference, this is easily identified in the difference between a, a, a mom and a dad in a household when their kid trips and bumps their knee, or a kid starts crying outside. Dads, here's what dads usually say. We usually say, you're okay, right? You're okay. You know, oh, they trip and they fall. Oh, you're okay. Don't worry about it. You're okay. What do moms do? Are you okay? Some of your moms are like, no, I don't do that. I say that you are okay. But oftentimes dad, dads, they say, you're okay. Moms say, are you okay? And at times, this, this is a perfect example of how God comes to us in different seasons of our life. At times, we need a protector and a provider who can tell us that we're okay. We're okay. We're safe. And other times, we need a comforter and a listener who speaks to our heart, and he's asking us, are you okay? Is your heart okay? What do you need this morning? And today, I believe that God wants to communicate that he sees you. Young mothers... God sees you amidst the pile of clothing that needs to be folded. He sees the dreams and the desires that you've placed on hold for the sake of your kids. Experienced mothers, God is proud of the work you've done and the work that you continue to do. He hears your prayers, and he's watching over your grown children. He sees how well you love your family, and he is so pleased with you. God loves you, moms. He sees you, moms. And if you're here today and you don't believe that God sees you, I hope today you walk away with the truth in your heart that God sees me 
He understands me. He knows what I'm going through. If you turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 16, we're going to look at a mother who was used and abused, and she was forgotten by others. This mother was a servant girl who had been taken far away from her homeland, and her life was turned upside down. But the Lord did not forget about her, and her name was Hagar. Her name was Hagar. Let me give you some background into this story. Some background into Genesis 16. The chapter before this chapter, Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise with Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. But the problem is, is that Abraham is 76 years old and he doesn't have any children. And 10 years later, when Abraham is 86, he and his wife decided that they needed God. They they needed to help God with his promise by taking matters into their own hands. They're old. They can't have children. And they decide we need to help God out in his promise. We're going to take matters into our old hands. So it's a really terrible, messed up story that we read about. What happens is that Abraham, his wife Sarah, gives her servant girl, this Egyptian servant girl, Hagar, to Abraham to be the incubator, to conceive a child for Abraham. And uh, some of you are thinking, well, that's not a very romantic story. And in ancient culture, it was actually the wife's responsibility to provide the husband with offspring. And if she couldn't, uh, she it was custom provi- to provide a surrogate for, for the man. And so it's this terrible story of, of Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. And Sarah gives her servant to Abraham so that they can have a baby. And this is what happens. She has a baby. And she has a baby easily quickly and she begins to treat sarah with contempt hagar treats sarah with contempt because she is kind of lording it over sarah and sarah gets hurt by this and she begins to mistreat hagar and she comes to abraham and she says what am i going to do with this woman and and abraham says do with do with her as you please and she begins she continues to mistreat hagar until hagar is forced to flee into the desert. Now, you know, we read this story. Oftentimes, this story is communicated as the difference between God's, uh, as the difference between waiting on God to move in your life, waiting for God's promise to be filled in your life, and uh, what happens when you take matters into your own hands. Because as we read this story, we find out that Ishmael, Hagar's son, grows into a mighty man, has many descendants, but his descendants are at odds with Isaac's descendants, and they still are today. And so we read this story oftentimes and we use it and it it very much is a story about God's covenant promise versus what happens when we take matters into our own hands. But as I read this story, I think to myself, what about Hagar? What about this poor servant girl who was used and cast aside and mistreated and sent off into the wilderness? What about Hagar? We're going to pick it up from Chapter 16, verse 7. Verse 7. Hagar has already fleed into the desert. She ran away because Sarah is mistreating her because uh, she conceived so quickly. And they have, they're at odds with one another. Verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring, spring that is besides the road of Sur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. 
Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Laharoi and is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar was born to Ishmael. Like I said, there's many lessons to be sought out within this story. But we, and we see the brokenness of relationships within the story. Oftentimes the Old Testament uh, tells us, I love this about the Bible, is it doesn't sugarcoat the gospel. It doesn't sugarcoat the story. Abraham is, is, is the one that God first came to to start this movement in humanity, to bring about the salvation of the world. It started with Abraham, and he said, I'm going to, I, I'm going to make you a great nation, and from your seed nations will be blessed. It starts with Abraham, and we, we consider Abraham to be this mighty man of God, but when we read Scripture, we go, oh, he was a screw-up just like us. He was human as well. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat characters in the story. It tells us how it is. It tells us the reality of what is happening. And so I love that about the Bible. But when I read the story, I think about Hagar. She didn't really have a choice, did she? She was used and mistreated. And so she had to flee because of her abuse that was happening to her. And the beautiful thing about the story is how God sees Hagar. She becomes the first and only person in Scripture. Get this. Hagar becomes the first person in Scripture to give God a name. There's a little bit more to this. A lot of scholars believe, you know, in Exodus, uh, God speaks to Moses and he tells Moses, I'm about to reveal to you my name that I didn't reveal to your ancestors. And he gives Moses the name Yahweh. And some people would ask, well, that doesn't make sense because in Genesis we see Abraham referring to God as Yahweh. So God must have known, Abraham must have known God's name back in Genesis. But uh, I, I believe this is right. I believe scholars have, have figured out that Moses was using the same name to connect the dots for the, for the readers to understand that it is the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is Yahweh. It is the same God that Moses served. It is the same God that came to Moses that delivered Israel out of Egypt. It's the same God. So up to this point, when God comes to Abraham and tells him to go to Canaan, they refer to him as Elohim. Or El, there was an ancient name that they would give to God. That he, they knew that he was the one true God, but he hadn't yet revealed himself as Yahweh. And so Hagar is approached by the one true God, and she doesn't know his name. And so she gives God a name and identifies God as how he interacted with her. She says, you are not, uh, get this, the first name that is given to God is not it could have been you are the almighty, most powerful God that humans give God. You are the, the all-judging uh, God. But what they say, what Hagar says is, you are a God who sees me. 
the first name given to God by a human is you are a God that sees me. God sees Hagar in the wilderness. And the same God that saw Hagar in the wilderness is the same God who sees you today. Despite whatever's happened to you or the mess you may have caused or whatever's or whatever you've been through, God wants you to know that he's your comforter, that he sees you. And so I've got three things for you today. The first one is this. Number one, God sees your worth. He sees your worth. When I was around seven years old, um, I was with my dad at a pre-tournament, a PGA pre-tournament practice uh, here in Washington, about seven years old. And I've got a got milk hat. And I'm, I'm going around getting all these pro golfers to sign my got milk hat. And I, I really wanted to get Tiger Woods and Davis Love the Third. I hadn't yet got Davis Love the Third's autograph. And I'm watching him. He's about to take a shot on the fairway. And I'm on the sidelines with my dad. And you know golf carts. All is quiet. Everybody is waiting for him to take his shot. Uh, his shot. And out of the silence, well, first of all, I, I lean towards my dad. And I said, Dad, I really want Davis's autograph. Do you think I could get it? And dad says, yeah, you just have to ask him for it. But he meant later when he's not in the middle of golfing. He's about to take a shot and I go, hey, Davis, can I have your autograph? Just cut through the silence on the 17th fairway. He stops and he looks over at me and says, sure, come on out. So I, I look at my dad like, is this okay? And he goes, yeah, go for it. So I crawl under the rope and I go out to Davis Love the Third, and he's golfing with Brad Faxon. And uh, there, he, he asked me a few questions. He says, do you like to golf? I said, yeah, I golf sometimes with my dad. And at the time, I hadn't really been golfing too much. And he hands me his golf club and puts down a ball and says, go ahead and take a shot. So I, I take a shot, and it just goes right into the pond, just poof, right there, right in front of me. And he says, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Well, Brad Faxon comes over, and he says, oh, I'll get that out for you. And he takes his, his nine iron, and he fishes out the ball. And he signs the ball. Davis Love signs the ball. They pass it around to the guys they're golfing with. They all sign the ball and send me on their way. And I tell you, as a seven-year-old, I felt seen. I felt worth something. In fact, everybody is talking about that. My dad went to work the next day. My dad was a superintendent at a golf course, golf course, Maplewood Golf Course, or Maple Maplewood, Maplewood Golf Course. And all of his employees are taught, hey, did you, did you hear about the kid that walked out onto the fairway with Davis Love? Wasn't that kind of funny? And my dad was like, yeah, that was my son. And, and it, was, it was this moment where I felt seen. I felt like I was worth something. I, was, I had pictures taken of me. I, I, I felt like I was a big deal in that moment. We know Abraham and Sarai, as they refer to Hagar, they don't call her by her name. They just call her their servant or, or their maidservant. She was just a servant, somebody to be used and to accomplish their desires. But in contrast, the first word that comes out of the mouth of the angel of the Lord is Hagar. Hagar, where are you coming from and where are you going? He says her name. Dale Carnegie, he wrote the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He says, names are the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Everybody's favorite word is their own name. And I think if Hagar could have heard the Psalms of David, I think Psalm 139 would have been one of her favorites. This is what it says in Psalm 139. For you created my most, my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They they cannot be numbered. Stop for a moment. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I, I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. Do you wonder if you're loved? Do you wonder if you're seen? Do you wonder if God understands what you're going through? His thoughts about you are more than the grains of sand. They cannot be counted. That is how much you are worth to God, how much he loves you, how much he considers you. God isn't too busy for you. He isn't some cosmic CEO who's running around, who's busy running the world. He isn't a terrifying judge in the sky waiting to punish you and demanding you to worship him. He's not an impersonal force of energy that can be that cannot be felt or heard. Instead, Jesus described God as a heavenly father who desperately pursues relationships with his kids. Every time he looks at you, he's amazed at how wonderful you are. And he really wants to see yourself through his eyes. He wants us to understand how loved we are by him, to see our worth. To never doubt who we are because we are loved by the God of the universe. You are so precious, in fact, that God emptied heaven for you. He bankrupted heaven for you. He sent Jesus after you. He gave everything to buy you back. That's what the word redemption means. You've been redeemed. It means you were once controlled, but you were once uh, you were once owned by God. God, you belong to God. In Genesis, God created you in His image. And then the enemy came and stole us away from the Father through sin and disobedience. But Jesus bought us back. We belong to Jesus once again. He emptied heaven to get us back. In order to begin seeing ourselves the way that God sees us, we've got to first recognize the ways in which the world around us find worth and value. We have to first identify the lies. How do you find worth and value in your life? Where do you find your worth? Many of us would say, if we're honest, we find a lot of value and worth in being successful and being wealthy and being beautiful. Beauty makes us feel valued and worth something. Fame. Let me, for all the parents in the room, you feel worth something when you have perfect children, when your children are obedient. Am I just preaching to myself this morning? I want, when my kids disobey and they're running amok, I just feel like I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible dad. I'm failing at life. I'm no good at this because I expect my children to be perfect and obey all the time. Where do you find value and worth? Because where we're supposed to find value and worth is through the eyes of our Father who emptied heaven for us. It was the price he paid on the cross that determined our worth. And you are immensely valuable to the Lord. God sees your worth. The second thing this morning is God sees your distress. Hagar's story continues in Genesis 21. If you want to turn with me to Genesis 21, we'll start in verse 14. But let me give you some context. Ishmael is now 13 years old at this time. And Abraham has loved Ishmael as a son. In fact, Abraham assumed that Ishmael is the son of promise. He's patting, him and Sarah are patting themselves on the back. We did it. We helped God out for 13 years. 
They think that Ishmael is the son of promise until God finally speaks to Abraham when he's 99 years old and tells him that Sarah is going to have Isaac. And when Sarah finally has Isaac, Ishmael starts to pick on Isaac. And Sarah becomes upset, and she tells Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And Abe, he doesn't want want to do this at first, but God tells him to listen to Sarah, and he tells him not to worry because both sons are going to have many descendants. And so Abraham sends Hagar away with Ishmael. And this is what happens in verse 14. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sent them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes and she went off and sat down about a bow shot away for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. And God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. You see, God is so kind to Hagar. He's so kind to her. He sees her in the wilderness again with her son and cares for them by leading her to a well. And God was with Ishmael as he grew up, and he made his descendants a, a, a multitude. And just as God saw Hagar's distress, he sees your distress. He sees where you're at. He sees what you need and the trials you are facing. Psalm 34, 17 says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Did you notice that this verse doesn't say that God's going to keep you from all your troubles? He will keep you from all your troubles. You'll never experience a bad day as long as you're with Jesus. That's not what it says. In order to be delivered out of distress, you first have to be in distress. And Jesus doesn't promise a life of comfort or safety, but he does promise to comfort you and to give you rest. And he promises he will always be with us in our troubles. We can remember the famous psalm, Psalm 23. My son Gideon has this memorized now. He's been working on it at school. Verse 4 says, Even when I walk through the darkest valley." I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Notice how, if you read Psalm 23, notice that the beginning of the psalm starts out as God is leading me towards quiet streams. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He wants me to stop and to rest and to experience his presence by the quiet waters. But when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not stop there. God says, keep going. You're not going to stop here. This isn't a good place to stay. I'm not going to have you rest here. I'm going to have you keep going. And he leads us. He comforts us. He guides us through the valley of the shadow of death. We continue on our way. Some of you might be asking, well, if God really loves me, then why does he allow me to experience pain and trials at times? If God really loves me, wouldn't he just take it away altogether? Well, Paul tells us one of the reasons why. 2 Corinthians 1, 
3 through 4. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You see, when we experience distress, when we experience trials and testing, we not only develop perseverance and character in the midst of those trials, but we're also given the ability to comfort others who are in trouble as well. And we get to share the peace of God with them. We can empathize with them. We can, we can, we can pass it on. God has comforted me in my sorrow, in my distress, and I, now I can extend it to you. God sees your distress. And lastly, it's God sees your future. God sees your future. God saw Hagar's future. He saw Ishmael's future. And he comforted Hagar with a word about who Ishmael would become and told her not to be afraid. I love sci-fi movies. Anybody in the room a sci-fi fan? All right, we got some sci-fi lovers. I especially love movies that involve time travel. I'm all about time travel movies. Some of my favorite movies are Interstellar, Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow, Tom Hanks, or excuse me, Tom Cruise. Anybody seen that one? Okay. X-Men, Days of Future Past. There's a few of my favorites, but I love time travel movies. And, and my kids sometimes ask me, where, Dad, where would you go if you had a time machine? If you could go anywhere in the world and see anything, what would you want to see? Well, we know in Back to the Future, Biff, he uses the DeLorean to find out the winners of sports games. And he comes back so that he can make a fortune, right? But listen to this. Did you know that God has already been to your future? God has already stepped into your future. He's already paved the way for you. Psalm 139, 16 says, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. What did God lay out in my future? I don't know. I can't tell you. I don't know what God has for your future, but I do know that according to Romans, it's good. It's good. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Think about what worries us most of the time. What worries us most of the time is what's going to happen in the future. What if I can't make ends meet? How are my kids going to turn out? Will I have enough for retirement? It's all worries about the future. I love what Pastor Francis Chan did. Have you seen this illustration that he did with a rope? Anybody seen this illustration? I was going to bring it up here, but I assume that most people have already seen this because it's been around for years. I should have just done it. But he has this illustration where he takes out this big, long rope that just goes to the end of the stage. And he says, imagine that this rope is eternity. Imagine that it just goes on and on and on forever. Now, he drew a little red white, excuse me, a little red line on this white rope. He says, see this little red line right here on this rope? This is your time on earth. All of our worry, all of our concern, worrying about paying the bills, worrying about our kids, worrying about our retirement, worrying about this and that, it's all on this little red line. And we so quickly forget that we have eternity ahead of us. But God has already been in your future. He's already paved the way. He knows what's going to happen. 
And he comes back and he tells you, it's good. I have paved the way for your good. You can trust me. Luke 12, 25 through 26. I'm going to ask Mary to come up as we close. Jesus said this in Luke 12. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Who of, you can, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Now, you might say, yeah, okay, Pastor, but Jesus was God. Jesus was God. Yeah, but the Bible says that Jesus didn't have a place to rest his head. He didn't have anything. He laid it all down. He, he lived as a, a traveling rabbi and didn't have a place to lay his head. You might say, well, well Jesus, he had all he needed. So do you. You have all you need. God is your provider. You have all you need. You are taken care of. You have access to the resources of heaven. You might say, Jesus knew that all of this was temporary and he'd eventually be in heaven with the Father. So he didn't worry about it too much because it was just temporary. Well, is that a mindset that maybe we need to model? To understand that this life is temporary, that it will not last. The testing, the trial, the pain, worry it will not last it will go away and i believe that jesus wants to give us a new sense of how much god is in control of our future that we truly do not have to worry it's way easier said than believed right way easier said than to put our trust in jesus to say i truly trust that you have my future but this morning i i hope that you take away that God sees your worth. He sees how valuable you are. And he wants you to see yourself through those eyes as well. God sees your worth. He sees you in the midst of your distress. He sees your troubles. He sees your concerns, your cares. He sees it all. And God sees your future. He's been there before you. And he knows what's happening. And He he's prepared a good thing for you. Would you stand with me as we close? Maybe some of you in this place, you've, 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 uh, you've doubted the love of God in your life. Maybe you felt forgotten at times. Maybe you feel like God isn't as concerned about what's going on in your life as he is in the lives of other people. And if that's you, I want you to just hear this word from the Lord this morning. Everybody close your eyes. Bow your head. God says over you, I emptied heaven for you. If you were the only one that Jesus could die for, he still would have done it. He loves you that much. God says over your life, I see troubles. I see the, the financial worries. I see the relationships. I see the sickness and I see the people that need healing. I see you and I care about it. Some of you have been worried about your future. God says over you, I see your future. I have been there and you don't need to worry. I've paved a way for you. Put your trust in me. Expect me to provide for you. Expect me to take care of your future. 
Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you truly are the God who sees us. Just as you saw Hagar in the wilderness, you called her by name. You gave her promises about her future. You saw her in her time of need. You are never changing. You are always the same. We trust your character. We trust who you are, Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all the mothers in this room. And I pray that you would bless them today. Fill them up with your encouragement. 